Hello, my name is Claire Heffron and welcome to this episode of the Geneva Centre for Security Policy podcast on the latest issues advancing peace, security and international cooperation. The Middle East and North Africa is a fragmented region. Its ongoing relationship with Europe is still important in terms of security, politics and economics. We discuss the future of this relationship with Christina Couch, Senior Resident Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. The Biological and Toxin Weapons Convention was the first multilateral treaty categorically banning a class of weapon. The treaty prohibits the development, stockpile, production or transfer of biological agents and toxins that have no justification for protective or peaceful use. It's still a contentious issue today. We spoke to Daniel Feeks, head of the Implementation Support Unit for the Biological Weapons Convention, United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs in Geneva, and Ms. Valeria Santori, consultant at the ISU for the BWC. Although the Middle East plays an important role in Europe, bilateral relations still form the basis for most of its diplomatic actions. The current dynamics of both regions mean that there's constant changes with various nations. We discuss these issues with Christina Couch, Senior Resident Fellow at the German Marshall Fund of the United States. Firstly, what is the existing relationship between Europe and the Middle East and North Africa? Well, there's not one relationship between Europe and the MENA and the Middle East and North Africa region. There is, uh, there, well, first of all, on the European side, there's the European Union that has relationships with all of these countries, and also there's a multilateral framework. Uh, and then there, is, there are different sub-regions, right? The relationships that we may have with the Gulf, with the Persian Gulf, are very different than what we have, may have with the Maghreb. The interests are very different. The member states have uh, uh, specific interests in countries. So you can't really reply to this in a generic way, but I would say that right now, if you want to give a generic answer, uh, right now the European thinking on the MENA region is very much focused on uh, security is very much focused on how to solve the three open warfare conflict that we have in the in the in the southern neighborhood, which are in Yemen and Libya and Syria. How is it evolving? The MENA region was hit by popular uprisings in 2011. Um, it became very clear and very fast, very clear to the to everyone what the challenges were, what what these people were demanding. These protests were grown on a bed of, uh, of authoritarian governance, of non-accountability, of uh, bad economic situation, youth unemployment, rampant uh, corruption, and so on. So initially, uh, essentially everything, uh, challenge, structural challenges that can be remedied just by accountable governance. Uh, all of these uh, challenges are still there, um, if not worse than before 2011. Uh, so this is the big, at the same time, uh, some sub-regions of the region, for example, all the, the, the ranchier state, the, the, the states that have oil and gas, face the additional challenge that they have to diversify their economies um, as the end of the oil era is uh, nearing and they will, in the mid and long run, no longer have the money to pay off their constituencies. Uh, so um, there, there is a host of uh, necessary reforms coming up. Uh, the question is, what can Europe do to, uh, uh, to motivate these reforms? Uh, and that is an open question that we haven't really answered. And what are the main challenges, opportunities facing the MENA region, short and long term? 
Um, the greatest opportunity for Europe is, I think, uh, to support Tunisia, which is the one uh, example of, uh, of a democratic country in the Arab world uh, that, um, uh, that, despite all its difficulties, uh, is still flourishing. That is an example for many other countries. Um, the interest is uh, comparatively low uh, if you m considering what the symbolic meaning of Tunisia. Uh, in my view, because Tunisia doesn't have any regional power assets, it doesn't have oil, uh, it doesn't have anything that is, let's say, in the short term useful to any of the European EU member states. At the moment, it is merely a, symbol a symbolic value, uh, which doesn't pay off right now. Uh, however, in investing in this country and investing in a democratic precedent in the Arab world um, will pay off as maybe if as Tunisia, once it's consolidated, takes on a sort of more a uh, significant regional role. And also, um, there's other countries, in particular in the Maghreb uh, and in the nearer Levant, that are, let's say, of, if not, if not uh, democratic, that are moving into the right direction, such as Jordan and Morocco, uh, where, the United, where the European Union still has significant influence and significant leverage, and that is where they could and should invest uh, uh, their resources to build a relationship and push these countries towards uh, uh, more accountable governance in order to, you know, establish, uh, help establish like little uh, nucleus of, uh, 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 of of better governance and of, of, of hence also better cooperation on regional issues, which is really what the Europe is interested in. And so make an investment in the good examples, make an investment in those places where, where more positive examples of governance are flourishing. Is there anything misunderstood about the region? On each of the each and every single one of the policy of the pressing policy uh, issues that you have, there is there are different perspectives. Not only from the southern and the northern shore of the Mediterranean, but even within the EU. So you don't even need to go that far. Um, as from the south, um, for a long time, the European Union has not really listened much to Arab voices. What the public, in particular, what the public wants. I think this is a lesson that the 2011 uprisings have taught uh, the EU uh, very strongly that you cannot only cooperate with governments, you cannot only listen to governments, you also need to listen to the, what the people want. Um, and at the same time, um, this lesson has not really that much been implemented because they keep just mainly listening to the governments. Um, and also there's the element, well, from the government side, um, the governments often accuse EU member states, in particular those with a colonial history, of still trying to push their prerogative in the region, of favoring, you know, having vested interests of favoring their own countries, and it's in a way uh, uh, perpetuating their sort of colonial prerogative in the region and trying to basically stay dominant. Uh, that is a, a common criticism. And then there's simply different perspectives, for example, in our relations with the countries of the region. Uh, right now, in the present situation, you can often see that the European Union is stressing very much the question of migration. They want the countries to, you know, uh, uh, do more, to behave more forcefully at, when it comes to stopping illegal migration northwards. They want them to sign mission agreements, whereas, for example, the southern partners, uh, what they want is uh, visa facilitation. They want their students to be able to come to study in the EU. So there's a little bit of a sort of parallel conversation going on, uh, which is not so much a question of misunderstanding. I think both sides know exactly what the other side wants. They just don't agree.
Today's security challenges are multifaceted and often span different fields. Effective contemporary policymaking must address the major issues and threats in the international arena while simultaneously anticipating future challenges in the medium and long term. In our program, we analyze the broad range of factors that will shape tomorrow's world, including transformative technologies, the interplay between neuroscience and international affairs, and outer space security. The Geopolitics and Global Futures Symposium has been created to examine the connections between the multiple dimensions of global security in order to understand, prepare for and respond to current and future challenges. The symposium will analyze risks and threats in global and outer space security, transformative technologies and use insights from neuroscience for an all-round understanding of international affairs. Participants will learn from world-leading scholars who are pushing the boundaries to develop fresh perspectives and ideas in global security. We can help you tackle emerging issues in global security with a creative and agile approach. Our interdisciplinary expertise in outer space security, transformative technologies and neurophilosophy will equip you with the skills and knowledge to develop proactive rather than reactive strategies in a rapidly changing world. Join us at the Geopolitics and Global Futures Symposium and learn how to navigate confidently the next big challenges of a complex security landscape. Biological weapons entail the utilisation of contaminants or infectious agents that are biological in origin. They are also referred to as germ warfare. There is no credible way to trace the development of biological weapons in any country. Earlier, we spoke to Daniel Feeks, head of the Implementation Support Unit for the Biological Weapons Convention, United Nations Office for Disarmament Affairs in Geneva, and Miss Valerie Santori, consultant at the ISU for the BWC. Well, the Biological Weapons Convention is an international treaty. It's negotiated by states back in the early 1970s. And the, the main objective of the Biological Weapons Convention is to prevent the use of biological weapons. So it's to prevent states from using biological weapons. So it has, it's a uh, ban treaty, basically. It bans states from possessing and using biological weapons. And it has various provisions for having investigations and for states to be providing assistance in case biological weapons are used. The ultimate objective would be to have all, all countries in the world to be members of the convention so that then the ban and the norm against using biological weapons would be universal. And how does the convention actually work? I mean, how is it in practice um, put into operation? It's a very short convention. It's not a very detailed convention at all. It's only four pages long and it's mainly an agreement between states. It doesn't create any big organization. It doesn't create any institution as such. So, as I said, we're a very small team. We're only three people working here in Geneva on the Biological Weapons Convention. And what it, how it really works is it works through having meetings, big diplomatic meetings that take place here in the UN building in Geneva. And the member states come together in those meetings. They discuss different issues relating to biological warfare. They discuss how to implement the convention and then sometimes they make agreements every five years they have something called a review conference which is when they can actually take decisions and come to agreements about how to perhaps improve the implementation of the convention or how to do something differently so it's really it's a, a diplomatic instrument and it really works through multilateral diplomacy which takes place here in geneva and then we in our unit we support those those meetings which is quite an endeavor 
It, it is, yeah, exactly, yeah. It's a, it's a big job. We're called an implementation support unit. So when we can, we support states to actually implement the convention. Yeah. But because we're only three people, yeah. it's very hard to support 180 states parties all the time. So there's a, there's a limit to what we can do in terms of um, funding and financing, obviously. Um, so one of the issues that's much discussed at the moment by, uh, by the member states to the convention is the issue of um, biological weapons and if biological weapons are actually used, for example, by another country against another country, or perhaps, as people talk about these days, about bioterrorism. So if terrorists actually use biological weapons. So yeah. um, perhaps you can say something about how the convention and how the international community would respond if biological weapons were used, perhaps by terrorists or by a country. Yeah, well, as much as we try to prevent such an occurrence from happening, uh, we cannot exclude that, unfortunately, one day this could be an event and we need, uh, as a community, to be prepared for such a circumstance. So, as regards the Biological Weapons Convention, there is an article which provides that uh, um, states can request assistance from other states' parties in case they believe they've been the object of an attack with biological weapons by others. Um, and uh, there are um, mechanisms uh, in the international community to help states cope with a situation like that. There are organizations that have a specific mandate uh, to help. One of them is the World Health Organization, for example, and there are other actors that uh, would be uh, on the ground. Um, you mentioned before that the Biological Weapons Convention does not establish an international organization. There's a unit which has a limited mandate. And um, this brings me to the consideration that there is no agency uh, at the moment which has a leading, a coordinating, overall coordinating role in case of a use of biological weapons. So it is very important that the various actors that would be there to help states respond to a use of biological weapons are well coordinated so that their action is effective. And at the moment there are efforts that um, are being pursued to make sure that this cooperation works uh, to the best possible. Well, that's all for today's podcast for the GCSP. Thanks for listening and thank you to Christina Couch, Daniel Feek and Valerie Santori for joining us. Join us again next week to hear all the latest insights on international peace and security.